We're going to get back into our study. It's been a few weeks now since we've been in Romans 8, so I did want to give you a little bit of review so that you're up to speed. The last time we were in Romans 8, we looked at verses 26 and 27, and it was that famous section where we see that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, prays for us. And and what we did in verses 26 and 27 is we answered these three questions. What does the Holy Spirit pray for us? How does the Holy Spirit pray for us? And why does the Holy Spirit pray for us? And the reason why we want to go back and review those questions and review those answers is because Romans chapter 8, 28 begins with the word and. You can't just sort of pull this verse out of its context. You can't just even take it and say, well, this verse in and of itself is something I can really know and understand without the verses before and after it. Because even in our scripture reading this morning, we saw this is a major part, a fulcrum, if you will, of of these two painful realities of the futility of a fallen, cursed world and the ignorant creation who inhabit it and the persecutions and trials and sufferings that come to those who are in Christ in accordance with what he said would happen if we follow him. But in the middle of that, in in, in the middle of that difficult truth, there is this rock of encouragement. There is this foundation. There, There is this massive transcendent truth that if properly understood will anchor you and stabilize you in the midst of whatever trials you face. And you must understand it. And we're going to take two weeks to unpack this one verse. Now I told you when we got into Romans 8, we'd start to slow down. Remember, we did Romans 7 in like one message. And now we've been in Romans 8, it seems like all year, but that's okay, because this is a chapter that we really need to take some just verse by verse, sometimes word by word, in order to fully appreciate at this point, this time around, at this stage in our development, what it is that Paul's communicating to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So we go back to verses 26 and 27, that's the context. What does the Holy Spirit pray for us? Why does the Holy Spirit pray for us? How does the Holy Spirit pray for us? First of all, what does the Holy Spirit pray for us? The Holy Spirit, remember, prays for us, intercedes for us in order to compensate for our weakness and for our ignorance. We're weak. We're not able to pray like we should. And sometimes we don't even want to pray. This morning when I was praying very early, I was reminded of this wonderful little book that Martin Luther wrote for his barber. He was getting his haircut one day. And his barber said to him, how do I pray? And and Luther, because he's Martin Luther, went and wrote him a book. And wrote this little book called A Simple Way to Pray. And he walks his barber through the three things that he does whenever his heart is feeling cold, whenever he's feeling weak, whenever he doesn't know what to pray. He says, I start by praying the Lord's Prayer, then the Ten Commandments, and then the Apostles' Creed. And he shows him how he prays these three particular ways. And as I was praying this morning, I did that very same thing, and I was just reminded of how wonderful it is, what a, spirit, what a guide it is, what a help it is, what a way to overcome weakness it is, because you're not worried about what do I say, and how do I pray, and what should be in my mind, and how do I not get distracted? You're focused. And I really believe the Holy Spirit has to intercede for us because we are by nature 
drifting in our minds. We are by nature not focused on the things that we should. We're, we're like the disciples in the garden when Jesus, at the moment of his passion, says to them, pray for me, and he comes back and he finds them all asleep. How many times have you gotten up early in the morning to pray, only to wake up a little bit later, realizing that you hadn't been praying quite as much as you thought you were? Listen, it's because you're human, you're weak, you're frail. The Holy Spirit intercedes for that. But not only that, to be honest, you're also ignorant. You don't know what to pray sometimes. There are situations in your life that seem beyond your understanding, and so the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf because we don't know what to pray, the text says. And then also he prays everything in accordance with his will, the will of God. Why is that important? It's important because Jesus said, whatever you pray in my name, it'll happen. The only way for you to pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the only way for you to pray in accordance with God's will is that the Holy Spirit takes these groanings, these yearnings, these prayers of yours, these sometimes inarticulate groaning thoughts and cries and conforms them into something that is absolutely consistent with God's will and therefore he answers them. And that's why you know whatever answer God gives you is the answer that God intends. And it's the perfect answer, it's the right answer. So not only then, what does he pray, but also how does he pray for us? The scripture says it is with these wordless groanings, these spirit-inspired groanings that we groan. It's not the Holy Spirit groaning. The Holy Spirit doesn't groan. The Holy Spirit doesn't have trouble communicating. The Holy Spirit is not ignorant or weak or uninformed of God's will. Uh, it's our groanings, but they are provoked by the Spirit. And therefore, God says, I see the mark of the Holy Spirit in your groanings, and those groanings are what come before the throne of grace that are used to intercede for you. And then why does he do that? The answer, as we said before, is so that everything that you pray for comes true. He will answer it. Everything prayed in his name, he will give you. And most importantly, so that you will understand that every answer he gives is working out good for you if you belong to him. Romans 8.28 exists in the context of Romans 8 to explain the significance of Romans 26 and 27. The reason that we can have such confidence in the intercession of the Holy Spirit before the throne of grace on our behalf in the midst of our weakness and our ignorance and our unawareness of God's will and our confusion in circumstances is that whatever he answers and whatever comes is God's will and it is always good if you are in Christ Jesus. So with that as a, a backdrop, now let's look at verse 28 again. And this is what it says, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now for this morning, because we're just going to lay the groundwork for this, we're not going to spend a long time this morning in this text, but I do, right from the beginning, I want to give you the context, the meaning, and the significance of Romans 8, 28. The context, the meaning, and the significance 
of Romans 8, 28. Let's begin with the context. Notice here, Paul makes a promise in verse 28. And that promise, as we said, is wedged between these two troubling realities that on the one hand, you have an earth that is futile and it is groaning in hope that one day it'll be restored. And you've got people on earth, even believers, who groan inside awaiting their own redemption. And Paul says here, it's not the redemption of our souls because that's guaranteed. It's the redemption rather of our bodies, the new heavens and the new earth. The earth is groaning for its redemption, its new self. Believers are groaning for the redemption of their bodies. They want the resurrection. They want the new heavens and the new earth. They want the curse to be overcome. They want to see the reality that when Christ said on the cross, it is finished, it was true. And all death and pain and tears and sorrow and confusion and the curse will be gone. That's what they're looking forward to. And so on that one side, you have the futility. On the other side, notice what Paul says. Uh, There's a great degree of suffering that awaits those who are in Christ Jesus. He says in verse 36, that for your sake, we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Now, when I read Romans 8.28 and it says all things work for good, and then I read Romans 8.36 and it says we are like sheep being slaughtered, I, I know you're going to ask a question, how do those two things go together? I'm anticipating your question because you are a thoughtful audience. You ask really good questions. You keep people like me studying hard because I don't always know the answer to the questions you come up with. But that's a good question. Say, wait a minute. If this is Paul's situation, but all things work together for good, how do you reconcile them? Reconcile them, pastor. Show me how this is done. Let me try to answer this. First of all, by making it a little bit worse. Notice what he says down in verse 37, 38, and 39. He says, no, that in all these things, in the these things of being killed all day long, in the, in the these things of suffering, he says we are more than conquerors. Somehow we are conquering even through suffering. And he is sure of this, that nothing will separate us from the love of God. And you say, well, that's a wonderful promise. But notice what he says, what might you think could separate you from the love of God? And he's going to give a list of things. These aren't theoretical. These are things that were happening to believers. These were things that we witnessed. These were things that people endured. This is the reality of what did happen to them, and yet it still didn't separate them from the love of God. Death, life, angels, rulers, things present, things to come, height, depth, everything in all of creation, all of these things are working to make you think that it has separated you from the love of God, and yet Paul says, no, nothing can. So how do we reconcile these two things together? Let's begin by looking at the meaning. So point one, the context. Point two, the meaning. We're going to take it word by word. Begins with the word and in the English translation, the word and... And it's a continuation of the thought then from verse 26 and 27. So based on the prayers that the Holy Spirit is offering on our behalf, he says, I want you to know this, continuing the argument. And we know. I love that word. In the Greek language, it's the word for we know objectively. And, and, and in the grammar, it's actually something you could translate as we have already known. 
It's something that happened in the past. It's settled. We know it. It has ongoing circumstances. We are anchored in this truth that we already know. He isn't about to unpack something that he is confident the Roman believers already know, and it is stabilizing them and is keeping them from being shaken in the face of futility and persecution. And so this morning, I want you to make sure you know it. The goal of the sermon is that you would know. And that if you don't know it yet, today would be the day when you settle it so that you can say from this day forward, I already know and I'm convinced and it's settled. And therefore my life has changed. Next week, we're going to talk about how this changes your life. I'm going to give you several illustrations from the Bible of people who lived this out. And we're just going to go person by person by person and like explore this through the arc of redemptive history. But for today, we, we, just, we really need the dots before we can connect them. So he says, you know this. It's settled in your mind. What do you know? I'm going to combine something now that's sort of spread out in your English translation, but it's this. This is what you know. That for those who love God, or said another way, for those who are called according to his purpose... That's what they know. They know that for these people, for the loved ones, for the called ones, for the ones set apart for his purpose, these ones, there is something special for them. They know it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Those two conditions go together. They're not separated. He's not saying if you love God and also called according to his purpose, as if you could love God but not be called according to his purpose, or you could be called according to his purpose but not love God. No, he's talking about somebody who is called and loves. What is he talking about? Well, it does not mean that on the days when you love God, things are working out good for you, but on the days you don't love God, things are different. That's how some people take this. Well, for those who love God, everything's working out well, and you think, well, then I better love God because I don't want my day to go badly. And the day goes bad, and at the end of it, you think, oh, I must not love God enough. I must not love God enough. I didn't reach the level of love that I need to show to God for him to dispense the good that would justify his promise in Romans 8.28. That is not what it means. None of us can love God enough to earn his favor. None of us can love God enough to earn his favor. So first of all, it does not mean that when you love him enough, good things happen, and you don't love him enough, bad things happen. Because the love that you have for God is the love that he gives you. The love you have for God is not a love that you generate yourself. The love of God that you have is a love that he imparts to you through his sovereign calling, through his election before the foundation of the world. It is to those whom he has foreknown, those he has predestined, those he has chosen to come out of darkness and death and disobedience and into light and light and love. The life and the light and the love are the things that result from being called and being chosen and being justified and being glorified. That's the love you show. Those who love God are those whom God has first, what? Loved. He says, you wouldn't even be able to love me if I didn't first love you. So to understand this correctly, understand that this is the definition of a believer So we know then that what follows applies to all genuine believers. Genuine believers love God. If you love God, you know God, you obey God, and you have a claim on all of the promises that are in this chapter. You have a claim on it. You can say this with absolute assurance that everything in my life is working out for good. 
let me just appeal to unbelievers who are here today. If, if, if you want to know that everything in your life is working out for good, it is only going to happen on the basis that you have put your faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and received from him the righteousness you could never earn in order that you might be able to experience the, the rest and the security of knowing that when you stand before the Lord one day, it'll be the righteousness of Christ that he sees and judges you on on anything that you have done. And therefore, you will know for certain that everything that happens in your life is working out for ultimate good. But then I would also remind you that if you reject that gospel, everything, no matter how good it is, is not working out for good. As good as it is, it is not going to end well. As good as it is externally, as happy as you might be, as wealthy and healthy and prosperous, as content as you might be, as spiritually uh, connected as you think you are to the universe, none of that is going to work out for good in the end because the one thing you're missing is the only thing you cannot earn or buy. And it's that righteousness that's given to you. I'll say more about that in a little bit. So then, we all know that what follows here applies to all genuine believers. They're the ones that love God. They know him, they love him, they obey him, they claim the promise. But there's something else here that he says. Notice, it is also for those who are called according to his purposes. That word there, purposes, it means, it means the sacred purposes. He has called you to something. He wants you to be something. Not only do you love him, but you also follow him. You obey him. You do what he's called you to do. Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, this is something else I really have to explain, okay? Because I think it's important for us here. We run the risk of, of hearing that and thinking that's the end of the story. If you love me, you'll, do, you'll, you'll, you'll obey my commandments. There it is. What does loving God mean? Loving God means obeying his commandments. As long as I'm obedient, that means I'm loving him. Here, here, here's what we need to clarify. If you have that way of thinking, if that's the only way that you think of to describe loving God and being called according to his purpose, then you will be moment by moment, step by step, funneled into this idea that God's love for you and your love for God is manifest only in what you do. You will become very, very active. You will become very, very focused on what you accomplish. You will always be trying to work, 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 and do more, and do more, and serve more, and serve more, and you'll be filled with guilt every time you feel like you're not doing enough. You see, when Jesus says that if you love me, you'll do what I command, that's the beginning of understanding it. That's not the end. Because we have to ask ourselves, what does he want us to do? Not just are you obedient, are you a generally obedient person, are you a hard worker, but what does he want you to do? How do I love him? How do I obey him? And this is why I love the Gospel of John, because the Gospel of John lays out for us over and over again, Jesus' simple teachings that if you love me, you'll do what I say. Yes, but what have I said for you to do? The simplest of things for each other. Forgiveness patience, serving one another like washing feet, the most, the most simple and, and humble of ministries, praying for one another, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, caring for those who are in need. Jesus says that, that you show love to me when you show love to the least of these. And you see, it takes the focus then off of what do you do and achieve and how many ribbons and badges can you earn to 
What are the people around you in need of, and how can I be the hands and feet of Jesus to them? That's what it means to love him, be called according to his purpose. And when you do that, they're going to see the things in you that are intrinsically good, and they are going to give glory to the Father. They're actually going to glorify God because they see the good works you do. Matthew 5, 16 tells us that. Now, let me give you one example because this is really where the gospel fits into this. Let me give you the most vivid example I can think of where all things are working together for good, even though the situation is incredibly bad. Turn over in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2 for a moment and verse 23. We're going to drop into another man's sermon here. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is a sermon that Peter was giving at Pentecost. And he calls out the Jewish people at this point. And he says to them, beginning in verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, here it is, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Stop right there. That's the all things for good. You see God's plan in this. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Did Jesus love God? Yes, perfectly. Was he called according to his purpose? Yes, absolutely. And what did that mean for him? That meant that God himself, by a definite plan and absolute foreknowledge before the foundation of the world, kept Jesus Christ's life on a very specific timetable, including the very crucifixion that Peter is referring to here. The very crucifixion that he is now indicting the Jews for causing the Romans to, to do. But he says this, the all things working together for good, God's plan. What about the evil? He says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Do you see how those come together now? The center point of Romans 8.28, the promise that all things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, is what stabilizes you in the midst of a futile world and a futile life and the ignorance and the sadness and the, the constant degradation of this cursed world and the inevitable persecutions that come from following Christ because that very hope is what allowed him to come to a cursed world. And Romans 8 says he came in the likeness of human flesh. That means cursed flesh in order that he might take death down to Hades and kill it so that when he rose again, he could then promise that at the end, when all of this world is made new, you'll be able to see how every single thing in your life worked out together for good. And in the new heavens and new earth, in your new body, in the resurrection, you will look back and you will not only be aware and accepting of everything that went on in your life, you'll be thankful for it and he'll turn all of your tears into, into joy. You say, wow. And I would suggest that the vast majority of the things going on in your life right now that you don't understand, that are painful, you will likely go to your grave not knowing what they were really meant for. But when you are resurrected one day, if you are in Christ, you will see it, and you will rejoice in it, and you will give God glory for it. Let's go back to Romans 8, 28. So we've talked about the context. We've talked about now the meaning of this text. Now what's the significance Here's the significance for unbelievers and the significance for believers. Okay, I'm going to cover both, and then we'll close. Significance for unbelievers. 
I, I, I would appeal to you today, if you're not a believer, if you're not in Christ, this is an opportunity for you to be reconciled to God. An opportunity for you to be reconciled to God. And there are just three words I always think of when I think about this reconciliation. The first word is to repent. Jesus says that you are to repent and believe the gospel. It means to turn. It means to turn from whatever self-salvation program you are on, whatever false religion you are following, whatever you think you're doing to make yourself good enough to earn the favor of God, turn from that. Turn from that. Number two is to receive. Receive the righteousness of Christ. His active and passive righteousness lived out for you in the years he was on earth in the incarnation before going back to be with his Father in glory. Receive that finished work. Don't ever think that if you make yourself good enough, he'll accept you. That you have to clean yourself up a certain amount for him to receive you. That you've got to come 50% of the way and he'll meet you the other half. That you've got to make the down payment and he'll cover the balance. There's none of that anywhere. It just doesn't teach that in the Bible. What it says is with empty hands, you come and say to him, receive me, accept me. Not based on anything that I've done, but based on what Christ has done. Please rid yourself of the notion that it's just you accepting Jesus. We've been fed these lines for a long time in the evangelical church. Accept Jesus. Pardon me. It's not about you accepting Jesus. It's about whether or not God accepts you. You can walk an aisle, pray a prayer, throw a pine cone in the fire all you want. That's not going to save you. What's going to save you is pleading a righteousness, an alien righteousness that's not your own. So cast off any mythology that you can somehow do something or that he, God is somehow waiting for you to make a decision based on your own free will, that he's just pining away, hoping that you'll love him back. No. If he's moving your heart now and drawing you, repent, receive the righteousness, and the third word I think of is rest. Rest then in the absolute confidence that when the Lord returns, that when he separates the righteous from the unrighteous, that you will be secure and that nothing you do in the rest of your life is going to make him love you more or love you less and you will only be judged by one person's righteousness and that is Christ's. Now, a quick word to believers. We're going to unpack this a little bit more next week, but a quick word to believers. This is an opportunity, I think, among other things, to set our minds correctly on the things that are above and not the things that are on earth. Because I am tempted, as I'm sure you're tempted, to discern what the word good means. All things will work out for good. Good. I'm going to define good by how good my life is right? My health is good. My marriage is good. My kids are good. My church is good. It's all good. How you doing, man? Good. It's all good. We say that, don't we? It's all good. That's not what he says here. The word good is not good, man. The word good here is intrinsically good. It is good on its own. It's naturally good. It's God's good. Perfect good. It's not relative good. All things are working out to perfect good, which means the perfect good can be accomplished even in situations that are circumstantially bad. Really bad. And so, as believers, we have to 
reorient the way that we think about what is good because sometimes it's going to be really, really hard for God to do what's really, really good. Your marriage is not good. Your kids are not good. Your job's not good. Your church is not good. You feel like everything is hard. You're just just pushing this rock up a hill constantly. I so I, I never I never look at social media normally. For some reason I did the other day. Like I go on Twitter once a month to like figure out what's happening. And somebody had this thing on Twitter, things on Twitter. And it was like a little little video, right? And they said the little caption was like, this is how they thought 2020 went or something like that. And I don't know who posted this. Maybe it was one of you. Maybe I follow one of you, one of your followers. I don't know. Um, um, but it was this, this so, so this woman is pushing this, this wheelbarrow up a ramp, okay? Up a ramp and into the back of a flatbed truck. And she's, she's pushing, it's a steep ramp. It's a big wheelbarrow. And she's pushing it, pushing it, pushing it. And it's full of manure, and she gets up to the top and her foot slips and she falls down and the wheelbarrow falls down and then it tips back over on top of her. And she's like, this is how I feel today. And I'm like, that's right. Like that sometimes is how it is. You're like, that's me. Some of you are like, that was me this week. How is all that working out for good? Because the good is the intrinsic good, the ultimate good, the eternal good. God might not fix the marriage. He might not fix the child. He might not fix the church, fix the job, fix the finances. I don't know. But I know that if you love him and are called according to his purpose and you're his child, it's all going to work out ultimately for his glory, which is always good. So it reorients our thinking It takes us away from being deceived into thinking that because we're rich or because we're healthy, that it means God loves us more. It prevents us from forfeiting our heavenly reward and refusing to store up treasure in heaven and instead storing it up on earth. It should release us from the demonic lies that question God's love for you when things are going hard. I want to give you plenty of examples next week of people who honored the Lord and did the right thing, but circumstances were hard. And sometimes it ended very badly. But just because it was bad from our perspective doesn't mean that it wasn't accomplishing the ultimate good from God's eternal perspective. And now in glory, they understand that. And so will you if you're in him. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for just this introduction to this amazing verse. And I, I do pray that we would even this week, be reading about it, thinking about it, preparing for a more in-depth study next week as we unpack how this relates to all of redemptive history. How does this fit into to creation and, and a fall and redemption and restoration? How, do, how does this work out in the lives of people like Job and Uriah and Esther, and Ruth, and Jesus. How how do we understand these truths so that when we leave this place, we are built up and encouraged and strengthened so that 
regardless of what we face, we stand out as a peculiar people. May may Tri-City Bible Church be peculiar in the best way. A peculiar people rejoicing in all things, giving thanks in all things believing with all their heart that it's working together for good. Even if now it's bad. Give us an eternal perspective. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.